0: Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at one of our worship services. Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at either 9 or 11. Good morning, Hope Chapel. Welcome back to Hope at Home. You're still there. I'm still here. And God's still sovereign. He's on the throne. Amen. Well, for those of you who might be joining us for the first time here uh, virtually as the people called Hope Chapel, I just want to take a moment and introduce myself. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the church. And I have the great privilege of ministering from God's word this morning. So we hope that you feel very welcome um, visiting us virtually Church, I do want to begin with a little bit of family business. Um, I have some news for you, and it's bittersweet news. Many of you know um, our dear brother Jim Edwards. Uh, Jim passed away uh, on Friday. He has graduated to glory. He is present with the Lord, um, and we'll miss him dearly. Uh, Jim was born on October 25th, 1925. He lived a full life. Uh, he was a man uh, of faithful service. He served in three wars. He served in World War II. He served in the Korean War, and he served in the Vietnam War. Um, but even more importantly, he served his wife, Tran, uh, their two children, and he served Hope Chapel here, his local church. Uh, just a few minutes ago, <clears throat> we uh, highlighted in that announcement video, Hope in Action, uh, well, Jim served there too for over 20 years. Uh, Having grown up here at Hope, I have many fond memories of Jim, um, as I know many of us do here in the Hope family. I know I speak for all of us when I say that we will miss him dearly. Tran, if you're watching, I love you. Your Hope Chapel family loves you, and we're all praying for you. There's one thing we all want you to know right now. It's that you are not alone, and we are all here for you. Amen, church. We'll miss Jim. Well, we're going to continue this morning in our study through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. So I just want to invite you to open up your Bibles uh, with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be studying uh, the entirety of chapter 8. So please open your Bibles um, and read along with me uh, the words of the one true and living God. Now concerning food offered to idols... For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this passage we have before us this morning... Really concerns a few different subjects. Paul's going to address food that has been sacrificed to idols. Uh, he's going to address how, we're re- how we are to relate to each other as the new family of God. Um, and, and he's going to address how we are to regulate our freedom in Christ in Christian living uh, with regard to our decision making. Um, so, the title of my message today is Food, Family, and Freedom. Now, the immediate problem that Paul is addressing concerns uh, at least some of the Corinthian believers who were attending feasts and eating food, specifically meat um, that had been sacrificed to idols um, dedicated to pagan deities. Uh, This faction of the Corinthian church really considered themselves to be strong and knowledgeable. Uh, Now, as we get started, I just want to... uh, invite you to invest a few minutes of radical focus with me, um, just so we can understand something about the cultural background to this passage and the historical background of Corinth. Um, Because if we understand some background, uh, it will help us to fully appreciate the problem that Paul is contending with, and really the beauty of his solution to that problem. Um, So just a few words by way of historical background. Uh, It turns out that we actually know a great deal about Uh, the pagan landscape in ancient Corinth. Uh, Part of what we know was recorded by an ancient Greek geographer by the name of Pausanias. He traveled across uh, Greece in uh, the mid-2nd century, about uh, A.D. 150, and he wrote a 10-book work called Description of Greece, and that work has survived today. He has an entire volume dedicated just to Corinth. Uh, And in that volume, uh, he discusses the central marketplace of Corinth. Uh, And as he discusses it, he mentions all the various temples and statues uh, dedicated to the pagan deities like Dionysus and Artemis, uh, Bacchus, Fortune, Poseidon, Apollo, Aphrodite, Hermes, Zeus, and the list really goes on and on. Um, Two markets were uh, adjacent to, they hugged the wall of this great big, Uh, ancient temple and just across a narrow street from that temple were the main fish and meat markets and on the west side of that marketplace um, was another giant temple that was itself dedicated to the Roman Imperial cult and all of this was just about a football field's length away from the very center of that sprawling town but now I also want to share a few words just about cultural background Even more alarming than kind of the uh, landscape of idolatry uh, geographically distributed in Corinth um, is what went on in the various temples. Uh, We know that priests and priestesses would lead feasts and banquets, celebrating and attempting to appease or ingratiate the various gods and goddesses. And typically, citizens would bring their own animal offerings to the priests, which the priests would then sacrifice to the pagan deities on behalf of, of the families. Um, the priests would do their thing. Um, they would conduct a sacrifice. Uh, they would often examine uh, the interior elements of the animals to, to try and discern you know, good fortune versus bad fortune. But then after the ceremony, uh, they would actually serve the choice, choice portions of meat uh, to the family thinking uh, that the deity would in some sense uh, imbue that meat with its power um, and with its presence, and that when the people ate that meat, that the deity would somehow um, empower them or, or take up presence in them. And so, so what would happen is they would eat, and they would they would drink liberally. Um, but then, uh, after eating and drinking, there would very commonly be temple prostitutes, even very young girls and very young boys for the temple visitors to do with as they pleased um, after eating and drinking, maybe with a little extra payment to the, to the God in question and certainly after abandoning all, all moral restraint. But what I want us to see is that um, these cult rituals were, they were pagan and, and they were pornographic. They were dark and they were de- demonic and they were very, very, very common. And so this is the, the kind of milieu that, that many of the, Qu- corinthian christians were saved out of um, in which they began their new faith walk out of so if you're a corinthian saved out of that life you've certainly been given a new life um, and new light but participation in that old powerful world or realm had to leave behind um, very real scars it would probably be very difficult for years and years to come, for somebody who had come out of that life to separate um, parts of that life from the whole of of that life in their memory and imagination. You know, sure, you're now a, a Christian, but looking back, it would be difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish the parts from the whole. It'd be very difficult to say, well, this meat here is perfectly fine. It's just meat. It's just all the rituals and the perversions that attended it. That were bad. It would be very hard to make that distinction. Um, If we were to kind of put our mind and imagine our experience um, in that time, uh, you know, the very smell of the meat that you used to eat in in the temple with the priests um, chanting and sacrificing and the drink flowing and the prostitutes waiting for you, um, just the smell of the meat would bring all those memories back. Uh, flooding back into the forefront of your mind. Um, It would be natural and right that your conscience could not, without probably many years of teaching and prayer and counsel and discipleship, cope with any singular element of that old whole package deal, even if you had lots of Christian friends who perhaps hadn't had that kind of background and, and had no problem with any particular aspect of it, namely the meat. So these are the people that Paul is primarily concerned with protecting in this passage. And so he begins this passage by first addressing uh, knowledge, love, and God. So look with me again at verses 1 through 3 in your Bibles. Paul says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possesses knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul begins this chapter, he begins chapter 8 with the words, Now concerning. Those are the same words that he used to begin chapter 7. And these words are just Paul's way of indicating that he's responding to another subject about which the Corinthians had previously corresponded with him. They've been having this conversation about meat sacrifice to idols before, and Paul's continuing that longstanding dialogue. I'm um, here in chapter eight, Paul's addressing the subject of food that has been sacrificed and offered to pagan gods, to idols. I think that it's important for us to note up front. Um, that Paul's going to return to this subject again in chapter 10, but with a slightly different emphasis. Here in chapter 8, Paul's most likely dealing with the serious problem of some of the Corinthian Christians actually attending some of these pagan feasts and participating in the banquets and eating the food that was served at those banquets. But um, just a few chapters ahead, in chapter 10, Paul's going to confront, I think, the lesser problem of some of this sacrificed meat being resold or purchased in the market and maybe consumed or served in their homes. Now, the first thing that Paul does in responding to the Corinthians is that he uses their own words against them. Look again at the first half of verse one. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. So uh, those words Uh, are in quotes because he's essentially quoting their reasoning. Um, They apparently justified themselves to Paul by saying, all of us possess knowledge. Hey, Paul, we know what's up. You don't need to trip. We know what's up. Um, Now, the specific knowledge claims that they're referring to in this statement are repeated by Paul. He rehearses them in verse four, which we'll look at in just a few minutes. Uh, But essentially what they're saying to Paul is something like this. Look, Paul. We're believers. We know the truth. And since we know the truth, we're not in danger of sinning or of being led back into paganism. We're just trying to enjoy some good meals, some good food. Um, And you you have to realize we do need to socialize with other people uh, outside of the church community. One thing we see throughout this letter, uh, we consistently see that the Corinthians overestimate themselves. They overestimate their knowledge. They overestimate the importance of knowledge. They overestimate their own spiritual gifts. Um, And they seem to constantly place emphasis on uh, many of the wrong things. But now look at how Paul responds. He doesn't even bother with addressing what they think they know. Rather, what he does is he cuts their argument right off at the knees by exposing a fatal assumption in their reasoning. Here's their assumption. Uh, They assume that all that they need to make decisions about Christian living is knowledge. Paul's response is, yes, but no. His response is, yes, knowledge is necessary, but no, knowledge is not sufficient. Now, I think we'd all agree that Uh, Certainly, to live the Christian life, we need knowledge of the truth, right? We need uh, knowledge of God's will and knowledge of God's word. And in fact, if we look back to the Old Testament, there's one very clear-cut example where God speaks judgment against Israel through the prophet Hosea for rejecting his knowledge. He says through the prophet Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. Those are sobering words coming from the one true and living God to his old covenant people who have rejected his knowledge. But here's the point. Genuine knowledge of the truth must produce something even greater. Look with me at the second half of verse 1. Paul says, this knowledge puffs up but love builds up he says what you have in knowledge you lack in love you see the problem with knowledge is that when we have a lot of it it tends to make us proud even arrogant Um, paul's saying that they are missing a second necessary ingredient to right, faithful christian living they're missing love and paul's going to build his case for the supremacy of love Uh, over the next four chapters, culminating in one of the most beautiful and captivating and widely recognized passages on love in the entire Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But here, Paul's correction to them is actually breathtaking. He doesn't dispute their knowledge. He doesn't even address it, other than its tendency to maybe make them proud. Rather, what he does is he says, Let me call your attention to something superior. Let me call your attention to something even more necessary than knowledge. And that something is love. But first, Paul's going to subtly rebuke them a little bit. He's going to just, you know, cut them down a tiny bit. Put them in their place. Um, Think about something with me for just a minute. We have a name for the person who thinks that they know it all. We call that person appropriately, a know-it-all. You know what the problem with a know-it-all is? What's the problem with a know-it-all? I can almost (laughs) read your thoughts uh, through the camera. I know that we're all thinking the same thing right now. The problem with a know-it-all is that they don't actually know it all, right? Um, Furthermore, most of us understand um, this specific truth, this kind of a general truth about uh, the accumulation of knowledge in this life. Uh, any type of knowledge Uh, in that general truth goes something like this. The more you know about something, the more you realize you don't know about that something. Let me give you an example. Um, When I graduated from seminary, um, I was conferred with a master's degree. Um, There is some sense in which I was declared to be a master of biblical studies, a master of the Bible. And the supreme irony in that moment is as I'm, Having that degree conferred and all the pomp and circumstance of the ceremony, I'm thinking to myself, like, man, yeah, I've learned some stuff, and this has been an enriching experience. I'm so thankful the Lord has given me this opportunity. I feel better equipped as a Christian man to lead and to teach and to minister and to love the Lord and His Word and study it. But really, I'm just kind of realizing that I'm getting started. I'm just realizing more than anything with the little bit that I do know now how much I don't actually know, and that I need to be a student of God's Word Forever. And I need to keep learning. So the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. I think we can all understand that. But the negative expression of that same principle goes something like this. If you think that you know a lot, you probably don't know as much as you think that you do. And that's exactly how Paul rebukes the Corinthians here in this moment. Look again at what he says in verse 2. He says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, He does does not yet know as he ought to know. So Paul just puts them in check. They think that they know. He's like, you guys don't really know. And so with that, maybe not so subtle, but extremely clever rebuke, Paul turns their attention to the truth that they should be concerned about. Uh, Look at verse 3. He says in verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So this is the truth that they should be concerned about. Here's the deal. You can say that you know a lot about God. You can say that you know a lot about Jesus. You can say that you know a lot about the Bible. You can rehearse a lot of memory verses. You can volunteer for a lot of ministry. You can attend church every single weekend. But the real question is this. Do you love God? Do you love him? That is the true measure of the Christian life. I don't care. If you go to church, I don't care if you speak to the church from behind a camera during the COVID crisis. I don't care if you give faithfully to the church. I don't care if you volunteer in ministry, attend mini church, read the Bible, cover to cover every single year. If you don't love God, it's all moot. All that activity can mean is one of two things. Either you're just really religious before God, or you really are in an authentic Loving relationship with God. Paul says that the one who loves God is the one who is known by God. Not the one who is really busy, not the one who really knows a lot, but the one who really loves. Furthermore, speaking of knowledge, the most important knowledge, according to what Paul's saying here, isn't what we know about God but rather that God knows us. Look again at verse three. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is one of those statements that, you know, when you're reading the Bible, you have to kind of read it over a few times for the truth and the profundity of it to like properly set in. He says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. I want to think about the second part of that statement first. Uh, What does it mean to be known by God? To be known by God means to be reckoned among his children. To be known by God means to have been made a new creation by him. To be known by God means to have been forgiven by God. To be known by God means to have been reconciled to God by God. To be known by God means to be loved by God. And all of these works of God's sovereign initiative towards us precede any movement on our part towards him. So the only way that we can love God is if he has first brought us near to himself, if he has first chosen in his grace to know us. I don't think any other writer in the New Testament really encapsulates and conveys this idea so clearly and simply and beautifully, uh, than, more than the apostle John. He writes in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4.19, he says, and, and we, we have this memorized, he says, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And Jesus himself describes what this kind of love relationship with God actually looks like um, in The Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 21, Jesus writes, uh, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, Paul, in our passage, is just beginning to build his case for the primacy of love in Christian living. But I want us to fast forward to kind of his concluding uh, crescendo remark uh, ahead of us in chapter 13 as, as, he, as he concludes his case about the primacy of love. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, uh, this is a verse that, again, many of us know. He says, uh, so now faith, hope, and love abide or remain, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, I want us to notice what Paul does say what I just read, but I also want us to know what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, so now faith, hope and love remain these three, but the greatest of these is truth. It's not what he says. He says the greatest of these is love. The great reformer, John Calvin wrote in his commentary on these very verses that we're looking at this morning. No learning is commendable. That is not dipped in the love of God. It's a profound statement. But all of this leads us to the first main point that I want us to draw out of this text this morning, and that is this. The greatest measure of Christian maturity is not our knowing, but our loving. And having established the superiority of love, Paul's going to show in the remainder of this passage um, that it's love that sets or defines the boundaries or limits of our Christian liberty. But as he works there, next Paul is going to pivot his attention uh, to knowledge, idols, and God. Um, So look with me at verses 4 through 6. Paul is now going to circle back to the eating of food offered to idols. And as he returns to this subject, um, we actually see Paul quote or cite the Corinthians probably from their previous correspondence to him, not once, but twice. So look with me first at verse four to see how he quotes them. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God, but one. Now, I don't know about you, but as I read these words, I can almost picture uh, these Corinthians kind of making their case or making their defense for their behavior to Paul. Uh, premise one, Paul, we know that an idol has no real existence. Premise two, and we know that there's no God but one. What's the conclusion that they draw inevitably? So what's the harm in attending some feasts and eating some perfectly good food served to gods that don't really exist? I mean, after all, we know that these idols are no more than images made of wood and stone. We know that these gods don't really exist. Seems like a reasonable conclusion on the surface. But here's my question. Does Paul agree or disagree with their premises, with their statements? I'd say yes and no. He agrees and he disagrees. Um, Certainly, on the surface, he agrees. Certainly, he agrees that there is no God but one. Um, Certainly, he agrees that the idol itself has no real existence. But he's going to go on to show uh, later that maybe there's a little bit more behind that than they fully understand or appreciate But here's my next question. Um, Does Paul agree with the application of their statements? Does he agree with the conclusion that they draw? Absolutely not. He doesn't agree at all. And so what he's going to do is he's going to correct their misguided application um, in verses 7 through 13, which we'll get to shortly. But first, what Paul's going to do, his next move um, is to drop some pretty heavy theology on them. And at first, as we're reading this passage, as we're kind of navigating, it seems uh, like a strange digression by Paul. Um, But his move in this direction, this deeply theological move, really should provoke us to ask, why? Why does he go in this direction? Um, Why does Paul get so theological in verses 5 and 6? And and I think the answer is uh, at least twofold. Um, First, Paul gets so theological Um, to introduce the reality that there's more behind the pantheon of pagan gods, spiritually speaking, um, than these Corinthians realize. uh, That all is not quite as harmless um, as they think. Um, But second, he needs to call their attention to the glory and the deity of God and Christ to remind them of who they belong to and to whom their allegiance is undividedly owed. So look at what he says in verse 5. In verse 5, Paul says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Um, Then his statement kind of cuts out. But I want you to notice um, Paul's words. He says, although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth. And so he's acknowledging their illegitimacy. He's acknowledging that that these so-called gods are not really gods in the sense that we as Christians believe in God, or really even in the sense that, you know, the pagan Corinthians believe in them as God, as gods. Um, but also notice his next words. Uh, he continues. He says, um, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. And I think what Paul's insinuating here. Um, is something that he makes more explicit later on in chapter 10. I just want to read a couple of verses to you um, from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I just want to read to you verses 19 through 20 um, to, to make this clear. Uh, he says in uh, chapter 10 verses 19 through 20, What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. That's pretty heavy spiritual reality. So the demons um, of chapter 10 are the gods and the lords that are uh, described here in chapter 8, verse 5. Now, all of this buildup leads to really the hinge uh, in in Paul's entire argument. Everything he's going to say turns on this next point. Um, Paul's really going to deliver the goods here in verse 6. And I really love how he begins what's a majestic, poetic, and glorious description about God in Christ. He begins that glorious description, that magnificent description, um, with three words. He says, yet for us. Yet for us. These These three words are simple, but they're meant to very forcefully Contrast Christians from idolaters. So, what does he say in verse 6? Let's read the entirety of it together. <clears throat> Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. In contrast, To their many gods, Paul says, we have one God. In contrast to their many lords, Paul says, we have one Lord. But he's just scratching the surface. This is just kind of scratching the surface of what Paul is trying to convey. He's just quoted the Corinthians saying, uh, we know that there is no God but one, Paul. And as they say that, and as he uh, recites it back to them, there can be a little doubt that at the forefront of the, the uh, Paul's mind and the Corinthians' mind um, was really the most foundational confession of Jewish monotheism. And this is another verse that we all have memorized, even if we don't realize it. Deuteronomy 6, 4, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So, as we look at verse 6, we can't miss what Paul's very careful and strategic and deliberate and beautiful parallelism and symmetry is uh, going to accomplish. Look with me again at verse six. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you uh, to showcase its, its, its symmetry and parallelism. But look what he says. He says, Yet for us, there is one God, the father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. There's one God, the Father. There's one Lord, Jesus Christ. One God from whom are all things, and one Lord through whom are all things. Well, with those statements in mind, I have to ask this question. Who else but God can all things be both from And through. But he continues, one God for whom we exist, one Lord through whom we exist. For who else but God can we exist both for and through? You see, on the one hand, these are clear and distinct affirmations by Paul of Christ's deity and pre existence with the Father. We have one God, the Father, who is Yahweh. Paul is saying, and we have one Lord, Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh. Paul is saying two of the three persons uh, in the triune God had clearly distinguished by Paul for the Corinthians in person and in role. And not only do we have one God, Paul says that one God is our father, not an impersonal God, but a profoundly personal God. And not only do we have one Lord, that one Lord is a person like us, Jesus Christ, who we can relate to, who can relate to us, who can sympathize with our weaknesses, who has redeemed us and reconciled us to our Father, who stands uniquely fit to be the one true mediator between God and man, being in nature fully God, he is fit to represent God to humanity. And being in nature fully man, he is fit to represent man to God. Being in nature fully God, he is capable of bearing the full eternal penalty of God's sin, which is reserved for us as only God could endure it when Jesus was on the cross for that moment. And as a man, Jesus was uniquely fit to pay the price for human sin, though he, as a human, was sinless. You see, this is all so personal. It's so purposeful. Paul says we exist for the Father, not for pagan gods. The Father is the source and the goal of our existence. We exist through Jesus Christ, not through pagan lords. Jesus is the means of our creation and also of our redemption. So the timeless truths um, in verses four through six lead us to the second main point that I think we need to draw out of this passage this morning, and that is simply this. Church, Christian living is grounded in Christian doctrine. Here's what I mean by that. Our confession determines our conduct. Our beliefs motivate our behavior. Orthodoxy, right thinking, right believing, produces orthopraxy, right practice or right living. You see, in contrast, all of paganism, our God not only exists in triune uniqueness, but we have a profoundly personal relationship with him that determines two things at the very minimum. It determines our lives and it determines how we relate to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, to our fellow believers. And that's the point that Paul is conveying to them by getting so deeply theological. So now finally, Paul is going to turn his attention to addressing knowledge, conscience, and Christ. We're gonna start working our way through the final section of this passage, verses seven through 13. And I want us to realize as we do that everything that Paul has said to the Corinthians up to this point has been foundational. Um, It's like, he's saying now, look guys, I said all of that. So I can now say this. So look, look with me uh, in your Bibles um, at verses seven, eight, and nine. I'm going to read them for us. Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The first question that we might ask as we read these verses first question that might jump off the pages to us is who who are the weak who's paul describing when he refers to the weak well paul speaks of the weak to describe those young christians who still in some sense believed in some aspect of the reality of idols even though they had um, received and believed the gospel message you see they had been saved but they still had a lot to sort out Um, they were young in their faith and they probably hadn't yet grown to understand that they didn't need to fear Zeus or Poseidon or Demeter um, and that those so-called gods are actually false gods. Um, they, they didn't uh, have enough experience and growth in the Christian faith um, in doctrine to, to make those kinds of distinctions. So they didn't have enough distance between their pagan past and their Christian uh, present to not be scandalized by seeing a more seasoned brother or sister in the Lord uh, enjoying a meal um, at a pagan table in a pagan temple. Uh, Paul says that they're weak in conscience because they've had a long association with eating food offered to idols and um, they can't shake the idea that that kind of food is somehow spiritually inherently contaminated. So unlike the strong... Uh, Those whom Paul has been addressing directly throughout this passage, those who he has been correcting, the weak, who Paul is so concerned with protecting in this passage, um, they don't feel like uh, an idol has no real existence in the world. Um, Idols are still, in some sense, at one level or another, still all too real for them. And eating idol food reintroduces to them the world of idolatry that Christ had saved them out of. God has given each of us a conscience. And our conscience functions as an inward faculty to distinguish between right and wrong. Um, As Christians, certainly to distinguish between acting uh, obediently, disobediently, faithfully, or faithlessly. Paul says, uh, when you lead one of these little ones to violate their conscience, because their conscience is, is weak, that you lead them into sin. In the book of Romans, uh, chapter fourteen, Paul's dealing with um, a similar but also different issue of or forbidden fruit, as he forbidden food as he is navigating the tension between a church um, that has Jews and Gentiles in it. Um, but what he writes to them is telling. He says, "But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith." And he says this. He says. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. You see, in this passage, the strong Christians are claiming that it's their right, that it's their freedom to eat sacrificed food because they know that it's harmless. They know that there's no real Poseidon or Zeus or Demeter. It's just, no, it's just meat, no big deal. But where they see a right, Paul sees Uh, something contemptuous, something that's a stumbling block to those who are weak. Um, And so to bring clarity to their confusion, Paul gives to them um, a case study. He gives them a hypothetical example. Look uh, with me at verses 10 through 11. Paul says, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. <clears throat> I mean, as Paul kind of dictates this hypothetical, you can see the scenario playing out. Um, a weak brother or sister uh, looking on, maybe out in the marketplace, seeing a more mature member of their Christian communion community uh, casually joining some Um, non-christian friends or family members for a a, a feast at the temple to dionysus i mean after all christians still have to socialize and what would they be thinking they'd be thinking oh not to pick on alan but there's brother alan he's enjoying himself but i know what goes on in that temple and how could he eat that food that that food has dark, dark power in it um I repented of all that. I don't think he should be doing that, but he's more mature than I am. So if he can do it, maybe I can do it. Maybe I should do it. Maybe I should go back to that. It's a tragic example, right? So now having addressed knowledge and conscience, Paul will finally bring his argument in this last section to a crescendo with Christ. He says in verse 12, thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. There it is. He doesn't say your brother sinned and wounded his own conscience. He says you sinned against your brother and you wounded his conscience. And when you sin against your brother, you sin against Christ himself. This is how we're to relate to each other within the family of God. If I sin against my brother, I sin against Christ Jesus is clear about how we're to view loving one another and sinning against one another he's clear about this um, in Matthew's Gospel Matthew chapter 10 Jesus says and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple truly I say to you he will by no means lose his reward so he commends uh, the, the good treatment the love of one's brother but then Um, in chapter 25, speaking of the final judgment, Jesus says, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. So not only will loving our brother be rewarded, but also Jesus says that loving our brother is tantamount to also loving him. The flip side of that is what Jesus says in Matthew 18 and in Luke 17. In Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin or to stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. The parallel to that in Luke's gospel, Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea Then he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Those are heavy warnings from Jesus. I have to think that Paul's words and his warning would have brought a similar sobering correction for these strong Christians, these strong Corinthians um, who are so confident in their knowledge, so certain of their way. Paul says, To them, the truth of the matter is that you lack love, and you sin not only against your brother, but you sin against our one Lord, against Christ Himself. And so, having kind of delivered this knockout punch of a rebuke, Paul simply concludes this part of his argument, this passage, and he leaves them with this. He says in verse 13, Therefore, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat it, lest I make my brother stumble. Which leads us, um, I think, naturally to the third main point I'd like for us to draw out of this text this morning. In church, that point is this. Christian love always prioritizes the spiritual safety of spiritual siblings. You see, love considers others. Therefore, Love limits our freedom as Christians when our freedom might spiritually endanger one of our spiritual siblings. Now, we've worked through this passage. Uh, we've drawn, I think, some significant application and truth out of it. I think God's spoken clearly to us from his word this morning. Um, but I just want to make an observation at this point. And then I want to move from that observation um, just to briefly address two common errors that I think are relevant to this passage, to the Corinthian situation, and that we frequently encounter in our own Christian living today. So first, the observation. In this text, Paul never says explicitly, definitively, whether or not merely eating meat that had been sacrificed at some point to an idol is actually sinful in and of itself. Now, I'm just going to leave that there for right now, because Paul's going to deal with that question, um, like I said before, more definitively in chapter 10, so we'll come back to it. But rather, I want us to observe that in this passage, Paul's whole purpose is to prioritize the way of love as a pathway to protection for those who are weak in conscience and vulnerable in our Christian community. That said, there is a sense in which eating the food at issue constitutes a kind of uh, gray area um, morally. It's underdetermined. Um, It's something that uh, in some sense is doubtful, but not certain. Does that make sense? Um, And these are the kind of areas where we're prone to error. We're prone to error in regard to matters of Christian living that aren't clear and distinct, black or white, but are kind of in a gray area. And in some sense, doubtful. And so the first error that we can fall into is uh, legalism or license. So I want to contrast legalism and license. Uh, Legalism says that every act, choice, decision, behavior is either black or white. Um, It is rule-based. It's not spirit-based. Everything is either good or bad categorically, and there's no in-between. Whether the Bible mentions it or not, legalists develop these exhaustive, exhausting lists of do's and don'ts, can and cannots. Uh, doing things on the good list and avoiding things that are on the bad list is the legalist's uh, reductive conception of what true spirituality is. No matter what the interior of uh, that person might look like, um, their lives are controlled um, in, in rigid They're they're controlled by the law, not not by the spirit. And and we should acknowledge that just refraining from doing things um, legalistically, rigidly, is not true spirituality. Walking in the spirit is true spirituality. We see that in this letter, especially later on. So legalism stifles Christian liberty. It it strangles the conscience. It, It stifles the word of God um and it and it stunts the voice of the holy spirit and so uh on one end of the spectrum in christian living we have the error um, of legalism on, on the other end we have the error of license License is on the opposite extreme um and so uh license uh you know has no gray areas just like legalism but it also doesn't have any black um almost Everything, um, according to license, is white. Everything is permissible. Everything is acceptable so long as it's not definitively, explicitly forbidden in Scripture. And so advocates um, of of license believe that Christian freedom is basically um, unchecked, that it's absolute, that it's unqualified, that we have unmitigated freedom so long as our conscience is not in some sense violated or, or, or scripture is not utterly uh, stark and, and specific. I think that this is the error that um, these strong Corinthians that Paul's writing to are probably have probably fallen into. Um, they knew that they wanted to, in some sense, maintain a blameless conscience, and they thought their knowledge was sufficient for that. Uh, but beyond that, they wanted no restrictions. They wanted to eat and dine freely. But what do we see in this passage? We see that Paul has introduced a better way, a way that's better than either of those errors. Not legalism, not license, but love. Love is the better way. Um, The Corinthian Christians certainly had to figure out how to live uh, their life in the culture that they were situated in, um, to be in their world, but not of their world. Uh, They had to decide where to draw the lines of spiritual, moral, and ethical conviction in light of their new life in Christ, Um, and as they grew in gospel conviction, as they navigated uh, the pagan uh, and godless landscape that they lived in. And we're not so different today, if you think about it. We may not have temples on Pacific Coast Highway to Aphrodite, Hermes, or Zeus, but we have monuments to materialism all over. We have abortion mills in every major city where we sacrifice unborn children. Um, And we have an Internet, which is a a glorious invention, but has been utterly perverted by pornography. If you think about it, we worship the same gods that the Corinthians did 2,000 years ago. We just worship them in different form and with different faces. Um, our, Our culture worships the gods of knowledge, entertainment, sex, money, pleasure, power, etc. And there's a sense in which a lot of our culture is freaking out right now. Some of the reasons our culture is freaking out right now in these circumstances are for good reasons, but some of the reasons our culture is freaking out right now is because those idols, those false gods are threatened. So as we navigate life in the postmodern post-Christian West, um, We're just as prone to the Corinthians, to the previous errors, but also to another error in Christian living. And so the other error I just want to very briefly address here is the error of separation versus syncretism. See, separation says that we need to maximally withdraw from contact with our culture so that we won't be defiled by it, so we won't be stained by it, so we won't be corrupted by it. But separation prevents us as Christians from being salt and light uh, as Christ has called us to, to, to be the light of the world, to be properly engaged with our culture. We're to be engaged, not disengaged. We're not to be separatists. We're to be emissaries of our King Jesus. We're sent by him to announce the good news of his kingdom and to make disciples of every tongue, tribe, and nation. That includes our tongue, tribe, and nation. Conversely, On the other end of the spectrum is the error of syncretism. Now, that's just kind of a a fancy word which describes or denotes the mixing of religions or worldviews. Like, say, for example, you take a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of secular humanism. You mix them up um, and you come out with your own preferred flavor of religion. Um, Well, that's. Uh, in error, in syncretism, when we conflate the values of our culture with the values of our Christ, then we as God's people, who have been set apart by him to be holy and distinct and to bear witness, um, we instead um, adopt pagan or secular practices with damaging consequences, not only to our faith, not only to our spiritual, to our church, to our surrogate family, but also and especially to the testimony of Christ. So as we learn to navigate life in our secular culture, the answer is not separatism and it's certainly not syncretism, but it is to be as Christ has called us to be salt and light. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. As I close our time together, I just want to reiterate that God's word has spoken to us in three ways this morning. We've seen from this text That the greatest measure of Christian maturity is not our knowing, but our loving. We've seen that Christian living is grounded in Christian doctrine. And finally, we've seen that Christian love always prioritizes the spiritual safety of spiritual siblings. We're called to love one another. We're called to look out for one another. We're called to care for one another, to have each other's backs, to protect one another. Four weeks ago, as we embarked on this, you know, live streaming church experiment, and we all started to labor to be submitted to the stay-at-home order, and we, you know, began navigating this present COVID crisis together, um, I spoke to us uh, from my office, and and I encouraged us from Romans chapter 12. And I think that those verses complement the verses we've studied this morning perfectly. And so I want to rehearse them with you and encourage us to continue to embrace these verses um, as, as, our, as our ethos, as we move through this, this, this COVID season. What does Paul say? He says in Romans chapter 12, verses nine through 12, he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another and showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Here it is. Let's take this with us. Let's hold on to it, church. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Amen? On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.